0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: The Heritage End of Year Fund Drive is officially on. Become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.
2: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and I am your host, Katie Kiefer. Um, And I'm going to take a moment before I introduce my guest, and we have a very cool guest today. Um, I just want to remind people that uh, we are in our end-of-year fundraising fundraising drive. Um, If you didn't make it to our winter gala, I'm really sorry, but it was absolutely phenomenal. Um, That was last week at the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens. But we still need your support. Um, We basically need about $150,000 to keep this radio station rocking and rolling the way it has been the last couple years especially. Um, so if you feel like becoming a member or giving a membership as a gift you go to heritageradionetwork.org donate or you just press the beating heart on our uh, website, uh, and it will take you to the donate page. Um, so please do give as much as you can, become a member, get some of our groovy swag, um, and be be hip, be contempo, and be tuned in to what is actually happening in the food industry, whether it's on my show, or whether it's on one of the many other fantastic shows on the air that talk about hospitality, beverages, uh, you know, fermentation, um, food history, you name it, we got it covered. Um, and so without further ado, let Let me introduce uh, my man of the hour. His name is Bob Langert. Uh, Bob led McDonald's corporate social responsibility and sustainability efforts for more than 25 years before retiring in 2015. He is currently a columnist and editor at large for the Green Biz Group and senior sustainability advisor for the Context Network, the premier global and agribusiness consulting firm in advancing Um, I just lost my place here in advancing agriculture. He's been engaged in social responsibility issues at a global level since the late 1980s, leading environmental affairs, animal welfare and Ronald McDonald's children's charities grants. He was appointed McDonald's first vice president to lead sustainability in 2006 with contributions spanning a sustainable fish, coffee, palm oil, beef packaging, extensive animal welfare progress, which we're going to talk about, and nutrition strategy, which actually I don't think I addressed in my outline, but never mind that. We've got plenty to talk about. And in 2007, Langert was named as one of the 100 most influential business ethics by Ethisphere. He is here today to talk about his new book. It is called The Battle to Do Good Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. And again, his name is Bob Langert, L-A-N-G-E-R-T. Bob, when does the book come out officially?
3: It comes out January 19th. I can't wait. and so glad to be on your uh, show to talk about this hip subject of sustainability. Yeah, very hip. <laughs> <laughs> well, more than hip, I think it's becoming very mainstream.
2: It's more than mainstream. It's actually an imperative because otherwise yeah. we're all going to fry. Because if we don't freaking get a grip on climate change, um, and that very much includes the food industry, uh, we will not be around much longer to enjoy McDonald's hamburgers, will we? Um, Bob, what made you write this book?
3: Well, I wrote it for uh, two reasons. One, I just think the story and the journey of McDonald's, sustainability journey, is, is amazingly fascinating. The ups and downs, the turbulence, the attacks from various groups like PETA and, and uh, Greenpeace and nutritional attacks and animal welfare attacks on us. And you know, So the idea of bringing you inside the company, as I did, to, uh, hey, how did we react? Who did we work with? How did mm-hmm. we solve some of these issues? How did we succeed? How did we fail? I just think it's a I wrote it as a sustainability page turner. And I think you know yeah. a lot of people will just find it interesting on that level. I think at the more important level I wrote it because I, I thought my twenty seven years being involved with all this stuff from kind of the birth of the whole movement, not only with McDonalds, but really all corporate America really and even with food is man, we learned a lot. And we learned yeah. through uh, hard knocks and we learned through some success and collaboration. But I, I wanted to pass things on to the next generation of leaders. It's you know, we talked about it being mainstream, this idea of sustainability, and it is. I mean, I was a lone ranger, you know, heading up sustainability for many years at McDonald's. Now, oh, sure. you know, there's staffs of 10, 20, 30 people, almost every major company has a chief sustainability officer. So I want to make it easier than it was for me and pass on <laughs> a lot of lessons learned.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I thought I, – I, I did find the book quite a page-turner. I mean um... – I definitely read the whole thing, and I was really fascinated by what I read. I, um, I, I let's start at sort of the beginning because where uh, McDonald's started was with the whole polystyrene, um, you know, back in the '90s. For those of you who are old enough to remember, um, <laughs> which sadly I am, um, or maybe that's a good thing. Uh, the there was a huge controversy over the use of those clamshell containers, which unfortunately are still pretty widely used uh, in other places. I know, for instance, if you go to a restaurant and ask for, you know, left your leftovers to take out, they'll hand you a clamshell. Um, so they haven't completely gone away. But you guys did uh, yeoman's work with um, dealing with uh, the fallout, the press fallout from that, and also with partnering with um, with Greenpeace, I believe, right?
3: No, the environmental. Defense Oh, sorry, the Environmental Fund. Defense Fund.
2: Excuse me. Yeah, and um, and that uh, that you both and what you what you came to was recognizing that environmental policy and profits. Are both green. I loved that analogy. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how you started that wave of partnerships with NGOs like the Environmental Defense Fund, um, which was basically a new, like a whole new paradigm for corporate players, right?
3: Well, when you say it was a new paradigm, it was it was earth shattering at the time. It, I mean, today you take a little bit for granted that companies work with NGOs. Back in 1988, back in 89 or so, when this whole running out of uh, landfill space crisis was going on and that's what was going on at the time right. people really felt we were running out of landfill space now it ends up the, not really the truth in retrospect but uh, mcdonald's was the symbol of a disposable society way too much packaging and waste yeah. and mcdonald's what are you going to do about it and we were the center of attention and, and we didn't know how to deal with it we had never dealt with such tough issues society never intruded into our business like that so we were baffled. We didn't have anybody working on the environment you know, stuff at McDonald's, and yeah. uh, I was just kind of chosen by one of the bosses for a temporary job to try to figure this out. And I'm I'm forever thankful.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> and
3: and it, and it came from a defensive posture. So then, luckily, my. Boss had a conversation with Fred Krupp, the the head of the Environmental Defense Fund at the time, and he had a different philosophy of working with companies. You know, the Environmental Defense Fund used to have a model of Sue to Bastards, (laughs) which is kind of a traditional environmental advocacy um, method.
2: Most definitely.
3: But his his method was, hey, we're going to lower our voices, and we're actually going to collaborate. And uh, we held our breath. We had a six-month partnership with them, and it turned out to be the best thing we ever did because these folks that came in from the environmental defense fund they were scientific they were reasonable they looked at all the options they challenged us in all in a good way mm-hmm. and we ended up you know doing 42 things to reduce reuse recycle we ended up uh, reducing 300 million pounds of packaging during the decade of the 90s due to that partnership and we did all that really well without, without spending a, a dime extra it was all you know through less using less resources less packaging we went from the doghouse to the outhouse. I mean, we huh. went from the doghouse <laughs> to the White House. Uh, right, right. We, you know,
2: <laughs> now you could we consider were, it the outhouse. Know, we were Ronald
3: McToxic, <laughs> and then we went to the Rose Garden and got a Presidential Conservation Award because yeah. of our partnership with the Environmental Defense Fund. So it's a great story of kind of turning something very bad into something good and getting doing something constructive, and to your point, Doing so, that's good for business, and that's to me what sustainability is all about.
2: Well, that's what they say. If it's not economically sustainable, it is not sustainable. And that's, I mean, you'll hear. I've been hearing that for ten years. I've been doing this show for ten years, and uh, people
3: plan profit. Yeah, you got to have profit. You got to have
2: profit, otherwise nobody will do anything, and you know. Profit is often something that you don't think it is. It's not necessarily as extractive uh, as it has become. Um, I'm sure you and I could have another conversation about where capitalism is going and the whole extractive model of capitalism and how, um, how that is ultimately going to have to change. But that will be for another program, no doubt. Okay. Why don't you talk a little bit, though, about some of the waste reduction initiatives that you did? Because I thought those were, you know, really innovative for the time.
3: Um, well, for the, for the time, it was uh, very innovative. Again, you got to put yourself back in, you know, circa 1990. Yeah. By the way, recycling was hardly happening at that time. That was the very beginning of all Correct. the curbside recycling programs. So one of the things we did at McDonald's is we developed this uh, Recycle USA program where we dedicated 100 million bucks a year to buying recycled products. And, uh, I mean, that was really the right move at the right time. Right. Recycled paper. We started putting all, yeah. Yeah, put all types of recycled content into our packaging. Remember, you know, people used to like the white, bright napkins. Yeah. And so we started to put in recycled content. They came out gray and speckled, and a lot of the people were like, oh, some of our own people at McDonald's, we can't do this. It doesn't look clean. You know, but we did it, and uh-huh. it works, and it's uh, good for the environment. We, did, we went from the, the pristine virgin white bags Mm-hmm. You know, highly bleached, yeah. the brown bags, unbleached. You know, we did composting tests with our waste and found out that, uh, you know, 90% of our waste is already organic, you know, that it actually can degrade into something usable. So, you know, all these things it just kind of prove the, the concept that if you put your, your mind to it, you can make uh, moves that uh, help the environment uh, and not really spend an extra penny. You're spending just more mindset time on it.
2: What about things like training your employees to uh, separate waste, organic waste, from paper waste? Or, I mean, weren't those things kind of challenging in the beginning? It seems oh, to me well, that would have been pretty hard.
3: It's, it's it's challenging today. I, I headed up a program. Well, you know, part of my job was to save the polystyrene clamshell, the, the famous styrofoam container. Yeah, right. So obviously I failed at it. But the uh, we had 1,000 stores recycling that container before we decided to dump it. Yeah, and we had all types of POP and materials and holes in our restaurants and had proper containers and telling customers what to do. But getting the customers and or the crew to separate it always was a tough job. Yeah. It still is, I do believe, for most people.
2: Well, I think, I mean, we have, um, I don't know where you live, but in New York City, we have a kind of, mm, not completely universal, but pretty, pretty common organic composting program in our trash collection or trash removals. And I know that we have in the basement of my building, there is a tr- uh, there's a, a bucket for, for compost. And I bet uh, out of probably 28 units in the buildings, quite small, there's probably only about 10 of us who recycle regularly or who, who compost, who separate out their organics regularly, because I see plenty of other stuff in the trash. But anyway, that's, a, that's, again, we're talking about me, and we're not really here to do that, even though I love to do so. Um, <laughs> what, what I was curious about was how much you were able to, or how much your, your example led other uh, food service, you know, QSR restaurants to um, follow your lead in terms of packaging once you were able to show that it didn't cost more money. Did that become a wave, or was it really pretty unique to McDonald's?
3: It became a big wave, and that was one of our big learnings, and the Environmental Defense Fund learned it as well. They realized, hey, if you can move a leader in the marketplace like McDonald's, you're, you're basically moving the whole marketplace. And that's what happened. It's, it's happened since then with many other examples. You know, but before you know it, you know, everybody's using the grayer napkins. Everybody's using tray liners that are you know off color. Everybody's using brown bags people are using reusables more so yeah I would say that uh, you yeah, we set the pace yeah or change that was very transformational uh, beyond just one company and one supplier it, it went went way more broadly and went more globally as well
2: well you're a global company so that doesn't surprise me but I, I am kind of interested in the fact that as you expanded into sort of developing nations you um, you know, how much did that change the way, of course, they didn't really, they don't, developing nations, McDonald's is often their first exposure to fast food. Is that right?
3: Generally. Yeah. Sometimes. So most you times. guys
2: are the leader there. I mean, that's, that kind of goes without saying. Well, let, let's spend a little time talking about Temple Grandin, because one thing that I know uh, many people do not know uh, is that McDonald's hired Temple to help them improve the quality of their beef and to therefore improve the quality of their animal husbandry. And that was revolutionary for a number of reasons the The largest of which was is that you didn't really see it as your role to dictate to agricultural production how they should grow cattle or process cattle. So can you talk a little bit about that story because i I thought that was really fascinating. In fact, I brought it up to a friend at a dinner party the other night, and she was she was wide eyed she couldn't believe it. McDonald's well, really
3: <laughs> I, I wish I wish more people knew the story that's that why I want to point
2: you. this out, yeah, exactly right
3: now. I mean, first of all, temple Grandin. For those that don't know, her, you got to check her out. Yeah. Temple Grandin is the, the most fascinating person I have ever worked with. Yeah, I she is the leading animal scientist around the world from Colorado State University, but she's autistic, and just yeah. and it makes her a very special, unique human being. Somehow, you know, she's uh, able to get in with these suppliers and really make an impact. So we we gave, she had this uh, blue sky idea of uh, animal welfare auditing where you can go into suppliers, audit their facilities, and basically develop a scorecard right. about how well they're doing. And we liked the idea and said, Hey Temple, here's the keys to our supply chain. And I helped uh, escort her around and you know, match her up with our suppliers and said, Hey. We kind of want you to work with Temple to make something happen. You know, we had been under attack for probably a decade for doing nothing related to animals. Because as you alluded to before, the animals are pretty far removed from, from our immediate suppliers. Yeah. Who we, we buy hamburger patties from. So we weren't used to working upstream. But so now we started to have our suppliers who make the hamburger patties work upstream with Temple Grandin. And she was like a rock star going into the facilities, she'd be on her hands and knees moving with the animals, she'd be saying, and I just remember, this is back in, what year was it, 90, 98 or so, 99, I'm going to all these facilities with uh, Dr. Grandin, and I couldn't believe some of the things I saw. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like Sinclair Lewis's, uh, you know, novel, but... It wasn't no, far really, from it, Bob. <laughs> uh, I mean, I... Know, what, what, what disturbed me the most is that they were electrically zapping almost every animal coming yeah. into the facility. And Temple said, I'm looking wide, I, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a technical expert, so I, I work with people like Temple to do this. And he says, this is not needed. You know, we can use flags and blankets, we can design the system so that they automatically move forward without all this electrical zapping. Right. So before you know it, we basically over a course of several years implemented her animal welfare system and it did, it did magic. And to your uh, point about the packaging with the Environmental Defense Fund, you know, what we did with our meat suppliers went USA, it went with our competitors, it went global. And if you were to go to uh, uh, the processing facilities today, you would see animals going through there almost like a, a library in peace, you know, versus uh, the kind of the chaos that I saw saw back in the late 80s. Anyway, Temple, she taught me a lot and. uh she just has so much passion so much persistence and so much uh, patience all mixed into one yeah I just uh, i admire her so much
2: yeah no i, I she actually uh, was my guide when I was taken on a tour through a meat processing facility owned by Cargill uh, about seven or eight years ago um, and uh, not only did she you know, run this tour for me. But then afterwards, she found out I was going to have to eat dinner by myself. And she didn't want that. So she hung out in my hotel room and ate dinner with me and then drove home. I think it was like a two hour drive back to her house. In the Dark, which I hate driving in the dark. So I really appreciated that. But anyway, no, she's an incredibly kind person. Um, kind, I, I stayed generous, in touch with her talker, for many years after. Yeah. yeah, right. I'm still in touch with her periodically. And I wrote a book about the meat industry, um, which was very much inspired by the work that Temple Grandin has done. Um, in terms of improving the supply chain. But uh, I, unfortunately, I don't have as rosy-eyed a picture of it as you do. I, there is an incredible amount of abuse still going on. Um, and often with smaller-sized plants that don't have the money or the impetus to, uh, to build the um, serpentine and the stunning box that she recommends in her mm-hmm. in her programs, but um, she has been, I think, inspiring to to many many people. And she brought that whole issue of animal welfare. Her her biopic I think came out right around the same time as that giant uh, scandal with the, what was it, Westland Hallmark or Westlake Hallmark? Remember that in Chico, yes. California, and there was footage from Mercy uh, for Animals or PETA where they saw you know there was a guy who was repeatedly stunning a downer cattle, a downed cow, and that is. Completely illegal. That animal has to be disposed of. It cannot go through the process um, and into the food chain. And you know, it was that was sort of like right after that came out Temple Grandin's, you know, fantastic biopic with um, Claire Danes. And I think it really opened people's eyes enormously to what was going on. So, um, yeah, she deserves her crown in heaven for sure. Now, one thing that really interested me about um, you know many of the battles that you waged, including uh, you know maybe even including some of the issues with the with the beef supply, was things like expanding uh, cage sizes for eggs or removing phthalates uh, from your toys. And you got a lot of pushback from your various suppliers, which I would have thought would be, you know, economic suicide. Talk a little bit about that pushback, because I thought that was fascinating.
3: You know, here I was, you know, trying to make some change happen and trying to be a, a leader with our suppliers, and I'd be visiting them uh, with uh, chief technology officers, chief innovation officers, and I thought I'd be visiting with... People, you know, the Einsteins of the world, you know, these these innovative people that are seeking new changes. Uh, In general, I did not. It's it's disappointing. So many – now, when I say suppliers, you know, I'm not necessarily saying McDonald's, immediate suppliers. I'm talking about the big big supply chain out there. And uh, I think the answer for the pushback – I'm not sure if it's pushback. It's more like they don't want to change. They're used to – they invest money. A lot of it, A lot of times, it's a lot of money. They invest in the equipment for you know manufacturing and processing that costs a lot of money, and they're not really looking to change. They're looking to fine tune. I think many of them have their head in the sand about society and sustainability, thinking this is just going to kind of go away. It's like a gnat, uh, and you know, <laughs> lo and behold, <laughs> it's not. It's not going away. I mean, you got companies like uh, McDonald's, Walmart, and so many others that are saying, "Hey, you got to do this. You got to do that." Uh, I. I you know, the food industry's been uh, a laggard, to be honest with you. Food and ag is, is not, has not been on the leading edge. Uh, up until recently now, you know, I see them moving. But for many years, you know, they've been resistance. You know, you, you talk about the uh, laying hen issue with eggs. You know, we made our first big move back in 2000, 2001 to go to bigger cages. Right. Big move at the time, went from like 48 square inches per bird to 72 square inches per bird. I mean, since then, McDonald's and now going cage-free. But at the time, this was big. Yep. A lot of resistance. We had 28 local suppliers of eggs, because eggs normally is fairly regional. All 28 suppliers said, you know what? No, thank you, McDonald's. We don't want your business. Now, remember, McDonald's does two percent of all eggs in the United States.
2: That's a lot of eggs. I mean, it may that's not a lot seem of eggs like they're
3: saying that they're not going to do business.
2: Well, with. that's what I—that's what—that's what astonished me about that particular story. But then, you know, it was repeated with other issues that you, mm-hmm. um, you know, confronted, like the phthalates in the toys or the um, what was the other one that really struck me? Um,
3: gestation stalls. Gestation, gestation crates. Stores,
2: uh, yes. Which is still a a huge problem. And you still have a lot of people in the agricultural world who will say that gestation crates are the bomb. I mean, there's no reason not to. Uh, You know, the animals don't care. You know, I don't know how you can look at a pig um, or really any animal look at it in the eye and say, it's fine for you to live, you know, (laughs) lying on your belly while you you pump out babies for the next three years before we kill you. You know, I mean, it's just so it is so immoral to me. Um, Well, it's
3: now this this attitude. It's changing. It's changing today. But in general, the farming producer community, who, as a whole, I mean, I I admire the people that raise our raise our animals and grow our crops and feed the world. I mean, these people are outstanding stewards. They really are, and I think they get misrepresented a lot. But you know, when it comes to things like the sustainability issues and brands like McDonald's, kind of asking them to do things they're like, hey, McDonald's, you run restaurants, we're the farmers, we're the ranchers, don't be telling us what to do. So that's, that's some of the battle and fights that we had over the years, and mm-hmm. it, it didn't come easy. And the McDonald's philosophy has always been, and mine as well, is you know, teamwork, collaboration. So this, this friction I don't think was, was healthy, but to some degrees you know, we, we had to do some of the things because we just wanted to do them. We thought they were the right thing to do.
2: Yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I share your admiration for the farming community, but I think that um, I, don't, I don't consider uh, somebody who is a contract producer for a large corporation. I, I just want to make this distinction. Someone who is running, um, you know, a corporation that is running uh, chicken houses or, or hog houses where you're stacking 10, 15, 20,000 animals in um, because that is the best way to make a profit. Uh, And you're cheating your farmer, the producer, those people are working under contracts that are really very unethical and certainly um, very uh, opaque. that's what I'm talking about uh, in terms of how you can live with yourself if you're, if you're participating in that industry and you're not looking to move change forward and, and make conditions better for animals. I'm not talking about, you know, your mom and pop guy or somebody who works for Nyman Ranch, my favorite corporation. You know, I mean, um, I'm talking about these, you know, the, the people who are more beholden to the shareholder than they are to um, either the community in which their production is located or even the people who are doing the production work for them. That's, that's where I have a problem, is with that, with that sort of mentality of shareholder overall. And that's where I think capitalism is running. You know, we're running out of space for, for the kind of extractive capitalism that we've been practicing, especially in the food industry. Um, but that's my little hobby horse. That's my new hobby horse, actually. Bob, how do you like it? <laughs> I, I, Speaking as, a, as well, somebody uh, who's you'll been, been, been in a corporate. you show
3: on that one, won't you? <laughs>
2: Speaking is I've actually had a couple of shows. There have been a few books that have come out recently um, that make that suggestion. I'm not an original enough thinker to to say that, you know, just like to look at the agricultural world and say, oh, extractive capitalism is no longer working. I have read some much smarter minds <laughs> minds on that subject, including the wonderful Raj Patel, who, if you are not familiar with Raj Patel, I highly recommend reading his work or listening sure. to any of his um broadcasts. Um anyway, but let's um Let's let's talk for a little bit about you know you mentioned uh, in your response to the last question about why somebody would refuse to change the, what they're doing when they're faced with a demand from a customer like McDonald's, but but can you talk a little bit about what it does take. Um, to change the model, so to you know, stop using gestation crates, or to make bigger cages, or go to a cage-free environment. What what exactly is involved for the guy who's in charge of that, uh, making that change? Because you you talked about the economic aspects of it. I mean, it, there's a it's very complicated to make a change like that. So I want you to take listeners through that.
3: Yeah, you know, maybe we should use an example. But it takes a lot of uh, you know. When you take a look at complicated issues that require. Uh, science and research and testing and collaboration, you know, sustainability is not just something that you rammed down people's throats. It's not a quick fix. This has to be long-term for it to be sustainable. So... (laughs) I'll use sustainable fish as an example, because it, cool. it was one of the very first things that we kind of made sustainable yeah, in McDonald's. Right. You know, we, at the end of the day, I think by about 2014, you know, all, of the, all the fish from McDonald's served as uh, Marine Stewardship Council certified, which is right. a wonderful thing. Now, if you go back in its history, the Marine Stewardship Council uh, system wasn't set up until the mid-90s. And then McDonald's started working with our suppliers in about 2001. To come up with a scorecard of, you know, green, yellow, red for our suppliers, and we work with Conservation uh, International on a, a grading system for our fish suppliers. Well, imagine the time it takes to get suppliers to work with Conservation International. Imagine the meetings you need to have. Imagine, you know, going to different facilities, learning more about fish and developing the scorecards and looking at the data. Imagining... Telling, uh, the Russian fisheries that you're no longer sustainable, but in order, we're just not going to going to kick them out. We gave them two years to get better. They didn't get better and we made a lot of changes. So what I'm saying is all these issues have a, uh, I've learned that especially the tougher big transformational changes take three, five, seven years. Yeah. And you have to make, that's, that's what they are. And you can't, you can't look for a victory tomorrow. But then when you look back, our work with Temple Grandin, really, from the beginning to it going very global, probably was a five- to uh, seven-year effort. And uh, we're in in McDonald's in the middle of working on sustainable beef, which is a similar life cycle. I hope it can happen, you know, quicker. But uh, that depth, that collaboration, uh, the evolution that's needed uh, requires that time and dedication, some investment and patience for sure.
2: But it's also, you, I mean, the, for, uh, from the supplier's side point of view, I mean, for example, phasing out gestation crates means completely changing um, the configuration of your facilities. Same with the cage-free thing. So it's like, it's not, you have to sort of, the other thing you have to wait is, for f- example, as I've understood, is you have to wait for equipment to wear out so that they have, yeah, so they're in an we, economic place where they're going to buy new
3: equipment. When we made our announcement on uh, getting out of the gestation stalls, that was done in 2012. Yeah, you know, we had worked with our suppliers. We we knew this was complicated and a mm-hmm. deep investment. It's a big investment to change your equipment. Yeah, multi-million dollars. Right. So you know you don't make that change in a matter of a couple of years. So that's why we uh, developed a 10-year phase-in process for that. So yeah, that's another reason is there are all these capital investments and keeping the <laughs> economic viability of farmers and producers and all the suppliers uh, healthy, so that they can continue to do what they're doing.
2: Yeah, right, right. It's it's you know this is the thing that that makes me crazy when people talk about making change, uh, and why I'm often sort of playing devil's advocate in the sense of being a little bit on the on the corporate side of things because because I do recognize that you can't just tell somebody you have to throw out your equipment that you just invested $5 million in, you know, three years ago because, you know... Uh, the public has just changed its mind about whether or not it's going to eat cage-free eggs. It's really, it is a much more complex process. And then also people have to learn new ways of, of new new forms of animal husbandry, for example, because it's a different thing to have animals in cages than it is to have animals in group housing, right? So there's a whole, that whole piece of it as well. There's a learning curve for the, for the production, um, which I think plays into this as well. Didn't you find that to be so?
3: Oh, yeah, very much so. And I, I think... You know, sustainability is when the people do it because they want to do it. Uh, so, you know, yeah, you could easily browbeat your suppliers or your partners to say do this, do that, but it's by working together, allowing the time for the awareness to build, the education, the training, the, I mean, everybody in my field talks about the need to integrate sustainability into the business. You don't snap your fingers and integrate this stuff. You have to – there's a lot of education and, and, and training and uh, awareness and evolution that's necessary for sustainability to stick.
2: Well, you found that to be very true just in dealing with your corporate uh, colleagues is that right i mean was it? didn't you find yourself often sort of at odds with some of your corporate colleagues in terms of the importance of per, or pursuing sustainability goals at least at the beginning
3: well yeah i think you know i was you know i think i was at odds especially related to the uh, timing of doing things and not being so reactionary what am i as i look back over my career at uh, mcdonald's you know we did i think we did some good things but a lot of times it was reactionary and playing defense versus you know, setting up a strategy and playing offense and defining who you stand for and going out there and uh, you know, working with the, the various stakeholders. And I think our, you know, when we ended up at McDonald's creating our first uh, finally proactive s- framework for sustainability that was uh, released in 2014, we had to get over the hump of taking a little bit more risk you know, our, our new CEO at the time said, "Hey, I want to be uh, real bold on sustainability." We came back with a real bold plan with bold goals for 2020, and the management team, including the CEO, said, "Well, that's too bold. Go back to the drawing board." <laughs> 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 oh but, dear. <laughs> but for my team, we went back in with the same goals and said, uh, "Hey, you can't but here's here's the, the conflict we had it wasn't it, it was a conflict of playing it safe versus taking smart risk. Because, you know, our, our leadership, and many companies are like this. They want to be leaders. Everybody talks about leadership. Yeah. But then all the lawyers talk, and then the conservative side takes over. He says, well, you know, we really don't want to take risk. You want to be a leader, don't take risk. So I said to the management team, that is virtually impossible. Right. So, you know, room, we need yeah. to pick our spots. You know, if we're going to be a leader, we've got to take some risk. And we got over to Hump, and, uh, you know, very proud of the, the framework that we developed in setting Bold goals, and McDonald's have been building on that since I left.
2: Mm-hmm. I want you to talk a little bit about the Coalition for immokalee Workers because I know most of my listeners are quite familiar with that fight for a penny a pound, um, and that was a long drawn battle. And you were not the only ones who were, you know, who were part of that battle because the the CIW was very effective in uh, pressuring, uh, you know grocery store chains and you know many of their other uh partners trading partners um in enforcing in that change why was it so hard to get mcdonald's to agree to pay an extra penny a pound you had a very interesting argument about that
3: well i think the first argument internally within mcdonald's uh, the team that i was on which was you know dominated by supply chain people was that that's It's not our business. You know, the the, the supplier, the people that uh, grow our tomatoes are a few steps removed. It's their job to hire the workers and pay them. Uh, I think our supply chain really considered it a slippery slope that once, you know, McDonald's gets involved with paying farm workers, you know, we're not farming. We're not experts at farming. That's their job. So that was the core conflict. It wasn't over the money. I mean, the money involved for McDonald's was... Really, not that substantial at all. But uh, there's a lot of internal resistance towards doing it. I, I, I fought hard on this one. I, I thought somehow we need to get more money into the pockets of these tomato pickers. I, I was down there myself, did the work, saw the conditions. They needed more money. <laughs> they needed better conditions. And uh, you know, we ended up after a couple years, as you referred to, kind of stiff arming uh, the issue. We, we finally agreed to uh, do it. Yeah, CIW, I think they've done a laudable job. Uh, they had a great coalition, especially with the religious community and the social justice community, yeah. uh, of lever- leveraging that and putting pressure on brands like McDonald's, Yum! Brands, others. But I'm glad that—but uh, it's funny. Once we agreed to give them a penny a pound more, yeah, which was big news, I yeah. remember going down there and shaking hands with the, the leaders of CIW— The suppliers who actually hired the tomato growers, the tomato pickers, said they were not going to pass it on. They refused to do it. So this is interesting. It took three more years for this whole agreement to take effect. So, you know, a lot of people think of McDonald's. Oh, my goodness, you could snap your fingers. And, again, it wasn't McDonald's passing the money on. It would be through our suppliers, technically. But here we, we want to do it. We said we'd do it. We had to put it in escrow because the actual suppliers who did this refused to do it.
2: You know what? I'm going to take you back though for a second to talk about the beef issues that you faced as well in terms of animal welfare, and and talking about you know like well you know they said why are you in, butting into our agricultural you know norms and how we raise cattle? I, I'm wondering why it was okay for you guys to connect with your with your cattle production people upstream, but it was a harder sell to connect with the tomato workers. You know what I mean? Because, like, essentially, it was a very sort of a similar, similar, you know, push into a, a level of your supply stream that you don't normally, uh, you know, uh, connect with. Meaning the actual people on the ground doing the work. So, why why was one yeah, more acceptable to you right. than the other? I, I was curious about that.
3: Yeah, it's a good question, and uh, certainly, the big sustainability sustainability issues, especially for food and ag, are, are way more upstream at the farmer level or producer level. I think it has to do, there's a big distinction between talking about animals and equipment and environmental efficiencies and then talking about uh, labor and people. Right. Uh, I just I just think there's a it's just a big difference.
2: OK, well, we're going to stop right there because I have to my my engineer has just kindly reminded me that I need to make a, a sponsor drop. So stay on the line. People stay tuned. We have more with Bob Langert, author of um, of uh, 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 sorry, of, of the battle to do good um, inside McDonald's sustainability journey. This is a really lovely conversation. Um, so we'll we'll be right back on the other side of this little break. Thanks for listening.
1: For the past 10 years, Heritage Radio Network has brought listeners around the world the most important voices in food and drink. I'm Matt Patterson, the lead engineer here at HRN. Six years ago, when I was teaching myself to brew beer out in San Diego, I listened to Heritage Radio shows for tips, tricks, and inspiration. Heritage Radio's programming simply would not be possible without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and give HRN a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. Now is the best time to show your support for HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org donate.
2: Okay, so Bob. Okay, now we have hit kind of a crux issue for me, which is, like, you didn't want to get involved in the tomato workers, even though you knew that that was really the right thing to do. If if the tomato workers were not sufficiently engaging, what about you? I mean, why why are you guys not paying your your employees enough money? I mean, it's kind of you know, it's like why why is paying people you know whether it's a tomato worker or your own you know counter help why is that why are you guys like why did Mc- i shouldn't say why are you guys because you are no longer at mcdonald's but why is that why is that a step too far for a corporate entity like mcdonald's because you guys are by no means alone you're just one of the more visible players but you are certainly not alone so can you talk a little bit about why it's so hard to get fast food wages up to a livable wage. I mean, I, I just took a quick peek at my computer before we had this conversation uh, about, um, you know, about sort of where the where the wage is and the fight for fifteen. Is, and and it's really you guys committed to paying one dollar over minimum wage wherever that happens to be. That's that's not quite what what they're looking for. So why is it a problem? You're making well, think, mad money there.
3: Well, I think the uh, you know the issue with uh, McDonald's when it comes to the people working there. It, the, the, the business model, and this goes back to the beginning days of McDonald's, was uh, you know, that the workers were, would be young, transient, and part-time. And even today, you know, most of the workers, most of the staff that work at McDonald's are part-time. It was not designed to be a full-time job, except for a handful of people in the restaurant. And they they make different wages. Sure. And like uh, managers, you know, I, whatever, I think, yeah. you know... You know, I'm not going to debate that a beginning wage like that can support a family, but again, the business model was that it's part-time, uh, it's meant to be a stepping stone to something else. And uh, by the way, for I will say this in a, in a very non-defensive way, for the person with no skills that wants to get somewhere in their life uh, and, and, and wants to get into the food business, going to McDonald's is a smart move. Yeah, you might start out at nine or ten dollars an hour. But, you know, you're joining an organization that's got 1.8 million people around the world. You know, many of them have risen up in the world to become, you know, managers and general managers and owner-operators. So, you know, I do want to trumpet the opportunity. The beginning is a start. Yeah. There's no doubt about it.
2: I, I just think it's curious um that that is such a big ask um to pay people a living wage and then I also think it's interesting that um so many of the people that you quote or describe in your book are people who literally did start out as counter jockeys and and work their way up, which is you know it was a wonderful story but um it's it just i you know with with all of the the lip service to the idea of of promoting from within and and you know- keep, and being such a big happy family you know. Like, the reality is, is that these people cannot live on that wage. And they also don't have regular schedules that they can count on. That's been another big issue with labor, I know, um, where, you know, your, your hours are changed constantly. So it makes it very hard, actually, to get another job to supplement your your McDonald's wage. And I, I, I find that um, troubling. I, I'm, and, and you, are, again, let me stress, I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger at McDonald's particularly. This is, in fact, endemic, as you know very well, literally from field to fork that uh, restaurant workers food workers in general are the least paid uh, professional workers in the country I, I'm you know whether it's you're working in a packing house whether you're picking tomatoes whether you're a counter jockey whatever it is um, you are going to get paid badly and um, you know it just seems it, that seems like the last piece of the puzzle for a company that's focused on sustainability to not make that you know leadership uh, take that leadership role and say yes we're going to do it for a company that makes as much money as McDonald's. You know what I'm saying, man? <laughs> yeah.
3: I hear, Did you I hear just hang argument. up? Did you just hang up? Yeah. Well, it's,
0: don't hate I me for strongly. that.
3: Hey, there's nothing more important than people. You're absolutely right about that and uh, but it's a bigger issue of, uh, you know, jobs and uh, yeah, you know, the worker at the worker at McDonald's, you know, it's amazing. And you know, when I retired 3 years ago, the average worker was 29 years old and when I was a uh, 30 years ago when I started you know people were teenagers so so you know again in the big picture you know the the, the jobs uh, for the middle class have been have been lost and people are looking for providing for their family and service jobs as you allude to and I understand the challenge And, and so that's Part of the whole angst that we see going on in our society, the getting the jobs that people you know need to support their families. So I'm very empathetic towards that.
2: Yeah, yeah, but it just you know it's it was striking to me that a company that you know clearly, as illustrated in your book, prides itself so much on being a leader uh, in so many other ways would not want to take on that leadership role in terms of providing a fair wage. Uh, you know that that was kind of surprising to me. But now we have reached the end of this program, and so I want to thank you, and I also want to give you an opportunity to promote the hell out of yourself so the book comes out january 19th where will people find it
3: the battle to do good will be it's on amazon.com you could pre-order it right now why wait that's right (laughs) give it to your family for christmas (laughs) my my publisher is emerald publishing you could order it through them as well but uh amazon's got a nice discount going on right now excellent i think uh I think people will be uh, fascinated by the story, they'll be uh, surprised, I think they'll learn. And uh, I hope people will uh, critique it and put uh, messages where they want to put messages and spread the word. Because I just think that our overall conversation is, is all about sustainability is here to stay. A uh, company got to do it, they got to do it bigger and better, make yeah. more impact. And uh, I think this book is uh, you know, one step that could help people out on that journey.
2: I thought so too. We didn't talk about your your um, your nuggets of of what do you
3: call them? Yeah, each, each of my chapter uh, at the very end, I have these things called uh, hard knock nuggets. That's hard right. to say. Hard, knock, hard nuggets. knock nuggets. Yeah, yeah. And I try to pass on some uh, you know real kind of quippy things uh, to help people out. Translate what I really wanted to do. You know, I interviewed fifty one people for the book. Yeah. So there's a there's a lot of profiles of uh, leaders within the companies, suppliers, NGOs. Yep. that I want people to learn not only from me, but from them. And so these things yeah. are being passed on to your audience to learn from.
2: Yeah. And do you have a website for the book?
3: BobLangert.com.
2: Okay. Well, check it out, folks. I really recommend the book. It's a quick and easy read. It was very interesting. It's a very interesting history of sustainability from a corporate uh, point of view. Um, and it's, uh, frankly, the corporate point of view is the only point of view that counts because they're the ones that move the money. So that's... Uh, <laughs> that's kind of where it all starts. So, um, you know, kudos to you for writing the book and thank you very much. And, and, you know, my, my, my hats off to McDonald's for showing the leadership that they have over the last few decades. It's really, uh, you know, I wish more companies were as, as forward thinking and, and lucky to have you as a, uh, as a, um, as an employee who did that thinking for them. So thanks an awful lot for being on the show today, Bob, I really appreciate it.
3: Thanks, Katie.
2: You bet. And good luck with it. And uh, thank you to my sponsor. And thanks so much for listening, folks. Uh, we'll be back um, after the break. The studio is going to be closed for a few weeks. I'll be back in January on January 7th. Um, and until then, um, have a wonderful holiday season. And uh, we'll see you on the other side of 2019. Woohoo! Mm-hmm.